Welcome to another episode of Relationship Rewire, where we talk about what's right and what's wrong with relationships and marriage in our world today. This episode is titled, Deconstruction of Faith, Winter Christians and Summer Christians. And my guest is Dr. Richard Beck. All right, I've got here with me today, uh, Dr. Richard Beck. Richard Beck is a professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University. And and correct me on any of this if I get it wrong, because I didn't run this all by you, (laughs) Richard. Okay. Um, He's the author of several books, including Reviving Old Scratch, uh, We Believe the Children, The Slavery of Death, Unclean, The Authenticity of Faith. And you've got another book coming out uh, in November called Stranger God. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, all of your books seem to have subtitles. So does that one have a subtitle? Uh, Yeah, Stranger God subtitle is Meeting Jesus in Disguise. All right. And you may have not known this, but back, I found out back in 1968, you also write, you you also wrote Icelandic poems and stories. Did you realize that? I didn't, I I wrote that, I guess, when I was one year old. (laughs) Yeah, I was, I was wanting to make sure I got all your books right. So I went on Amazon and there was all those books. And then there was one more by Richard Beck called Icelandic Poems and Stories. So. Yeah, there's a couple different Richard Becks out there. And I will make this one correction. The book, uh, We Believe the Children, was written by another Richard Beck. Oh, okay. Uh, so that's not you. Well, it's, it sounds like a, a title you'd, you'd write. Oh, it's a fascinating book. It's about kind of the, the moral satanic abuse panic in the 80s. Oh, okay. So fascinating. I haven't read it, but it seems like an interesting book. But Yeah, um, yeah it did. This, this. I grew up in the 80s, remembers, remembers all of that. Oh, Yeah. Definitely. And, and so you've been married uh, 26 years. Correct. To Gianna. To, I'm sorry? To Gianna. Yeah, that didn't come through clear for some reason. One more time. Oh, to Jana. To Jana. Yeah, Jana. It's, it's from, from this end, it sounded like you said, in Indiana. Oh. So, um, and you've been at ACU for about 20 years there teaching. Yeah, correct. Got a, got a couple of... Uh, Young sons, young men. One's a sophomore at ACU. Correct, Brendan. Brendan, and one's a sophomore, did you say, in high school? Well, yeah, Aiden's going to be a junior now. He's going to be junior. a junior at Abilene Christian Schools here. All right. Well, I, uh, for those of you who haven't heard of, of Richard Beck, uh, I've been reading his blog and I've known about him, heard him speak at different things. And my father um, is a big proponent of yours. In fact, he's one. Have you had Richard Beck on, on there yet? And I said, no, great idea, because he's got a lot of good stuff I could pick his brain on. But one of the, the things I wanted uh, that I invited him on this for that I wanted to talk and pick his brain on is this whole idea of deconstruction of faith and um, some uh, differentiating that be- between uh, or, or apart from what we might call doubt. And then another thing that you're going to describe is summer Christian versus winter Christian. And and then how that all applies to marriage. So, so Richard, uh, that this, this term deconstruction of faith been floating around, becoming more popular. There, it might go by some other terms, um, but why is this term important, or is it important? Or what should we be talking about here? Yeah. Well, in, in one sense, the deconstruction of faith is something like everybody goes through um, when we are raised as children. You know, going to Sunday school classes, we have very rudimentary and childlike visions of God and faith that as life goes on, we have experiences, some of those traumatic, um, but sometimes it's just meeting somebody, meeting our, 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 the first person. So when I was a church of Christ kid growing up, the first time I you know, had a conversation with the Baptist. And so you start encountering other kinds of people, different faith perspectives, anywhere from different world religions to, to atheism. And you just start, needing to make adjustments to your faith. So in some sense, everybody is deconstructing their faith. Right. Revisiting mm-hmm. faith that they have and asking some questions, kicking the tires and some things stay the same, but some things change and some things get more, more mature or more complex. And sometimes it's a move from 
certainty to more mystery, um, or sometimes it's from faith to a more doubting kind of stance. But I think the term has been brought up a lot recently to talk about something more specific than just the general trajectory of going from childlike to a more mature faith. And that's kind of the journey of what I would call post-evangelicals, people who grew up in a conservative, a fundamentalist, or evangelical context and started asking questions about the, the theological underpinnings, about the way they read the Bible or the way they read the Old Testament, um, the way they think about the atonement or the problem of suffering. And they start questioning and deconstructing their evangelical faith and move to what many would describe as a more progressive or liberal Christian stance. And so a lot of popular progressive writers um, are, are just we've watched their journey of deconstruction as they've written memoirs about their faith and the questions they've asked and the new kind of more liberal progressive stance that they've taken. So more specifically, deconstruction is this kind of journey from evangelicalism to kind of a progressive liberal Christianity. Yes. And, and so I think one of the, the things is that not just uh, in between relationships, but uh, a lot of people and church leaders uh, are getting nervous about this terminology. And when you say progressives, a lot of people think of progressive uh, Christian while you're saying that you're uh, necessarily then a uh, liberal Democrat in politically speaking too. And I think it's important to differentiate progressive faith, progressive Christianity from, uh, from political Progressive, or is there a difference? Well, I think they overlap a lot. You often will see, and, and I think that's one of my concerns about uh, uh, the journey, the deconstructing journey. Is it just simply, are these just evangelicals um, who became Democrats? Like, and I, I think that can explain one part of that trajectory. But, but yes, I do think there's a difference between progressive politics and progressive Christianity. If you're going to try to describe progressive Christianity, um, some, some features of it would be um, they would they would struggle a lot with um, the problem of suffering and very simple or providential perspectives that God deter- God wills suffering. So they have a lot of questions about the the, the idea that God wills suffering um, or, or or that suffering is somehow always good. So they have a lot of questions about the problem of evil. They have a lot of questions about hell, um, eternal conscious torment. They struggle a great deal with the fact that God might condemn the vast majority of mankind to, to torture forever and ever. They struggle with penal substitutionary atonement, the idea that God needs a blood sacrifice for his wrath to be appeased. They, they struggle with, um, but they do have a more inclusive view of the kingdom. And so they, this is where they will butt up more on progressive liberal agenda. So they might have more welcoming attitudes towards sexual minorities. And so. Right. And, and, and infallibility, infallibility of scripture. Right. Often a, they'll read scripture a little bit differently as well. So, so you often will see debates between evangelicals and progressive Christians, you know, on these various theological points. And somebody who's deconstructing their faith is probably asking questions about these various doctrinal issues. Okay. And so you say that's uh, a little different or maybe vastly different from what you would call a winter Christian versus a summer Christian. Talk about that. Right. I think they, again, these overlap a little bit, um, but in, in work I have done in writing and with my church is I've used these two terms, summer Christian and winter Christian and a, a winter Christian is somebody whose faith journey is characterized by que- more questions than answers, that the questions they have just keep coming and they never really seem to terminate into a final kind of answer. And so their faith journey is always tinged by doubt. And, and by contrast, the summer Christian is going to be resting into the certainty. It might be even more dogmatic, but it's going to be more of a peace-filled, optimistic, positive experience of faith. God is close. God is present and available, and God is good all the time. Where a winter Christian, those certainties come a little bit slower. And um, and so I would like to characterize those as temperaments, almost spiritual personalities. In my own marriage, I'm kind of the winter Christian, and my wife, Jan, has been the summer Christian. 
And so that's a little different from this pro this deconstructing process, which is a journey from kind of a conservative to more progressive theological position than it, than it is just living your whole life kind of characterized by a questioning, doubting kind of stance towards things that, that uh, other Christians like some Christians might be easier. Faith is easier for them. Um, God's more present and available to them. Yes. Uh, I would say, I'm more of the winter Christian than, and Joanna would definitely be the summer Christian. It sounds like there's a lot of similarities there, but it also sounds like you're saying that it, you you could actually be of the winter Christian bent more like you and I, and uh, but still, uh, but actually be less of a deconstructionist in your faith than um, the summer Christian. Is is that could that be a possibility? No, I think that's right, because I think doubt and the questions often trigger the season of deconstruction. The, the doubt itself is an engine of asking questions and putting question marks behind um, everything that you kind of hear. So where you might hear a sermon, um, the winter Christian is going to walk out of the sermon with a bunch of questions that they, ha- they, they would like answered, where the summer Christian is going to hear it and going to accept it and, and, and move on. But I do think the winter Christian temperament is a kind of engine for deconstruction. Um, I just and but the point I'd like to point out about that is that it's 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 less a journey that ends that they will go through this season of deconstruction and then at some point in their thirties or forties or fifties then it all ends. No, I think this is going to be like I said a temperament um, that that this is a texture faith that's just kind of the way the person's wired um, and. Would but, you say then that, that like for the summer Christian? when they have those, those things that, that kind of hit them in the face that, that um, go against what they've always believed. It's, it's typically a lot more difficult for them. It's a, it's a makes a, it's more acute, makes a bigger impact typically. If they, if they run into something that they, they like a, like a new theological idea or paradigm that they don't, they don't, um, they don't agree with or don't, I've never heard before. Or are you talking about a life experience? <laughs> well, I, I was thinking of when I took, I took two semesters of Greek there at ACU and I was so fired up as I was like, great. Now I'm going to finally know what the Bible really says, at least the new Testament. And then we got in there and, and within the first couple of weeks and we're looking at definitions of some words and some of the words, um, the, the definitions were so broad depending on context. And then, you don't always know the context because you don't know exactly what it's like to, for the person writing for Paul or whoever's writing it 2000 years ago in Koine Greek. And, and it actually was like, to me, it said, okay, there's so much that we cannot nail down uh, so much more than I thought. And so it shook my faith quite a bit, but it, it, it deconstructed a lot of uh, my ideas about uh, scripture, but in the end, it actually strengthened my faith because it, it made me, uh, it forced me to think of God uh, less as something that we can define and something that we just have to trust. And um, I think for somebody else to go through that experience, uh, maybe somebody with more of a summer Christian bent, it would uh, just, it might just burn their faith down altogether if they, you know, if they uh, have always been a word for word, uh, it's all black and white there in scripture kind of faith. No, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I think there's ample testimony that theological biblical education can begin and kick off a process of deconstruction. And some people are able to tolerate the amb- ambiguity and tolerate the questions and the mystery and come out the other side of that with a stronger faith, but some people do, right? When the, when the black and white certainties falter, um, struggle to put the pieces back together again and lose faith. So I do, I do think that's a fascinating issue about when a season of doubt and deconstruction leads to reconstruction, a, a rebuilding of a stronger faith versus when it kind of, um, causes somebody to lose faith. What, what are the critical features that, Mark, mark how one goes uh, on that journey. I don't know. I think that's, that's one of the fascinating questions about all of this. And I think it's one of the worries on a marriage because yes. the spouse, 
the spouse who isn't deconstructing is watching their spouse deconstruct and ask these questions. And they're wondering where the end game is. Is, is my spouse going to come through these doubts with a stronger faith or mm-hmm. are they going to lose their faith? And so they, I think. Am I going to have to start going to the universalist church with them? Right, exactly. So I do think there's a lot of worry when you see a spouse going through a spiritual change of any sort because deep, very deep things about who they are and what you built your marriage on and the person you thought you married are changing and significant things. Um, And it's very worrisome to kind of be a spectator as your spouse is asking these kinds of questions. Yes, yes, for sure. your marriage getting worse instead of better? Has there been talk of separation or is either spouse considering divorce? If any of these apply, then Love Reboot is your answer. Come join the hundreds of couples who are once in despair and headed for divorce, but are now experiencing a thriving, growing relationship after attending a Love Reboot weekend. Visit us at growinglovenetwork.org for more information on an upcoming Love Reboot workshop. Hello, this is Max Lucado. You're listening to Relationship Rewire. So, um, okay. I don't know. I, I, I'm the one who said this, so I'm not sure to what degree you agreed, but um, uh, it, it kind of seems like that deconstruction, de- deconstruction of faith is, is a part of all people's faith to some extent. Well, I would hope so. I mean, I think, I think Paul suggests that, right? When we're infants, we're raised on milk and then we have to mature to meat. And I'm assuming that meat is more complex, more nuanced, more deeper. So I, I would hope so. But but I don't, sometimes it doesn't happen. People still, I don't think they perhaps, but I would think it's a natural process to do that. Everybody, every mature Christian should go through it. Okay. Well then that brings up another question. Uh, can we become more like Jesus without deconstructing? For example, if we have a 1950s church of Christ or Baptist kind of faith that are, was passed down from our grandparents to our parents to us, um, can we become more like Jesus without deconstructing that? Uh, can't we just be good to people without questioning our long held beliefs or, or is it essential to becoming more like Christ? Well, I, I mean, I kind of, I'm a deconstructing doubting kind of progressive Christian. So, so, but, but it's one of those things where I push back on, um, my fellow progressive Christians about that issue is that is that there seem to, there are people obviously who um, are not progressive haven't gone through a dark night of the soul as Saint John of the Cross would call it haven't gone through a period of doubt are not winter Christians who are some of the most loving kind compassionate Christ like people you'd ever meet yes and so I think the answer is obviously I don't think you have to. And in fact, I think going through deconstruction and a journey toward progressive Christianity can actually make you a worse person. It can make you lose faith. It can make you, I've seen a lot of progressive Christians that have gone through this, all this doubting, and they become real judgmental about people who haven't. Like they have reached this kind of intellectual insight into the faith. And so they, they adopt a very critical stance toward um, the theology that they felt like they have outgrown. I do think when you see yourself as reaching a mature stance that you can become prideful about that. So I do think it can actually make you worse. Sure. Um, That said, the reason I've journeyed to a more progressive Christian stance is because I do think the theology that I've journeyed toward is more beautiful, uh, is more healthy, is more loving and kind um, and less toxic and judgmental and so I don't want to. So it brings you closer to living the great commandment. Right, right. I think Jesus has become more and more central in my journey, um, 
where I grew up uh, in a, I grew up in the church of Christ and, and I, my journey used to be about the way we did church. Like Christianity was all about the way we did church. And the more and more I centered love in Jesus um, in this journey of deconstruction, I think, I think I've journeyed to a better theological position that makes me a better Christian and makes me more like Jesus. So it's both. And I do think theology makes a difference. I do think there are some theological stances that lead you into pretty toxic and dark places. And I think we've all seen that where Christians don't behave very much like Christ. And a lot of the reasons they do it is because of doctrinal or theological beliefs they have. So I don't want to suggest that theology doesn't make a difference. And yet, there are very conservative people who are friends and family members of mine who are some of the most loving people there there are. And so, yeah. And I think in, in some of those people, as they see the people around them, uh, someone that they care about going through a deconstruction phase, the, the question they might have is why do you need to do this? You can be a good loving follower of Christ without questioning all these things. Right. Well, I think they can, but some of us others can't. And, and so I think there's a couple things here. One is I think we have to really respect the, the individual nature of, of the faith journey. Mm. We have to realize that there's a lot of diversity. Just even naming summer and winter Christians helps normalize the diversity. The, the way that two people can sit and listen to the exact same sermon have very different responses to it. Mm. They can listen to the exact same praise song and one can find it horribly problematic and the other one can find it very uplifting and taking him into the throne room of heaven or this and, and that was the experience that my wife and i had the summer winter christian like we just same church but very different reactions to what we were experiencing and that can be really alienating so just recognizing i i, I can't tell you how often um it happens that we come get in the car after a sermon and Joanna will say that, that wasn't that just the best sermon. And I'm going, hmm. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. or vice versa. <laughs> you know? But I think, but I think unless we have names for this and just say, it's just, Hey, winter Christians and summer Christians just feel, feel differently. Unless we normalize it. Then what we think is there's something wrong with our spouse. Like, like there's something wrong with her for finding that sermon like you, you would think, well, what's wrong with her that she would find that inspiring? And she's thinking, what's wrong with him that he would find it problematic? <laughs> and so instead of judging each other, we just recognize, hey, you know, what feeds me doesn't feed you. But, but I'm excited when you find, you know, a sermon or a podcast or a book that really feeds you. And so that we can share those things back and forth. And I think Jan and I have been on a great journey because where I think I was really, really wintry and she was really, really summery when we when we married that I, I would describe myself more now as more of an autumn Christian, like her faith. I like that. Has seasoned me a little bit. Like, uh, uh become a little more springy. Huh? Right. And she's a little bit more, you know, springy. And so we've, we've recognized the strengths of each other's faith journey. Um, oh, and that the diversity of the body, the, their strength of the diversity of the witness, because I think if you just have summer Christianity all the time, and it's all happy, it's all optimistic, and it's all faith-filled, then that Christianity begins to touch with the dark realities of life. It starts not becoming very honest. Yes. But if you just had all winter Christians, then, <laughs> then everything would be dark and gloomy and questioning and doubting, and, and there would be nobody to sing the hopeful songs. So I think we really have gifts for each other. Yes. If we can't pathologize each other and see each other as spiritually diseased. Okay. I, I love this. I love this. This is, you know, um, Genesis talks about um, that we are created in his image. And then right after that, male and female. Well, um, I'm one, she's the other. So at best we are only, I mean, if I was a perfect male, then I would, still only be half of the image of God. And uh, so I, I think this is great. You know, it goes along with uh, almost every couple that I've, well, no, so far every couple that I've dealt with that I've looked into this, one of them prefers to ha achieve intimacy through sex. And one of them prefers to achieve intimacy through conversation. And uh, they, they, it's just weird. It's like, and we have a lot of times it's the female who prefers intimacy to achieve intimacy through sex and the, the male, but you know, you know, it's usually 
um, the male who prefers the sex avenue and the female who prefers the conversation avenue. But it, what's uncanny is that they're always married to the opposite. Yeah. And it's like, it's like that's, that's something that we're drawn to. It's like we're drawn to this other um, aspect of God that we don't have. And, 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 and the two of us, you know, me becoming more autumn, my spouse becoming more spring, we are actually becoming more Christ-like in some ways. What do you think of that? No, I think that's right. I, 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 do, I do think, I think there's, there's always a temptation to, to assume that everybody's, we're just ego, naturally egocentric. You know, that we, we define and become the measure of everything else. So what I want, what I need, the way I see things is the way my spouse should see things. And I think it's the same way um, in workplaces and the same way in churches. And, and, and so, so empathy for the, the differences is, I think, critical to, to just being a well-developed human being. Otherwise, it's going to be like, why is, why is everybody not seeing it my way? Why is not everybody having the exact same spiritual experience I'm having? What's wrong with these people? <laughs> you can doubt yourself what's wrong with me um and, and i think that's the a root of a lot of conflict and misunderstanding mm-hmm. yes well you there in in one of your recent blogs you had quoted uh not doris day i don't who is dorothy day by the way dorothy day was a, a catholic activist she was the founder of the catholic worker movement so she you know who shane claiborne is i've heard the name yeah yeah so so she was kind of like one of these new monastics before there were new monastics. So she lived in voluntary, voluntary poverty uh, in New York City with the poor in these houses of hospitality. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah, and so she's now been, consi- been considered for sainthood. Uh, okay, all right, yes. Uh, I, I, I should be – it's mostly names. I, when you start to talk about who they do, then, oh, yeah, I've, I remember that just the name. Well, she, uh, you had this quote of hers that says, we love God only as much as the person we love the least. Um, so bringing that into marriage, uh, should, should a spouse give up the process? If I find myself in a season or if I'm just a winter person who's always deconstructing and questioning, uh, should I give up that, that process? Uh, for the sake of the marriage. Yeah. Well, I, I can't really show you the diagram, but in the winter summer Christian um, dynamic, it's actually a, a two by two kind of table um, that on one dimension, you imagine a horizontal dimension in, on that I would call the, the complaint dimension. This is the doubting, you know, dimension. So, you know, on the left-hand side is certainty and faith and on the other side is doubt and complaint or these are the lament psalms material you know questioning god's um, presence or god's affection or care and, and and implicitly we tend to think that's the only dimension in play that it's either faith or doubt and that doubt must indicate a lack of faith but but the deeper insight is there's actually if you can imagine a vertical dimension cutting through that space that I've in my research called the communion dimension, or it's an, a dimension of engagement with God. And so winter Christianity is actually the um, kind of upper right quadrant. There is a lot of doubt and there is a lot of complaint, but it's still engaged. It's still, the complaint is being brought to God. It is still being, you're wrestling with God. So there's still engagement. And the summer Christian quadrant would be obviously the, you know, the, the upper left-hand quadrant where there's lots of certainty and optimism and there's lots of communion and engagement with God. And I think that's the dimension that doesn't get talked about a lot. And I think it's relevant to your question because when we think there's only one dimension, doubt versus faith, then we think that the only solution is to reduce doubt or not talk about our doubts. And that just really limits your options. And one of the things I've argued is that we should um, pay more attention to the communion or the engagement dimension, that, we're, that the doubts are at least verbalized and talked about and shared. Now, that creates a problem that you're saying, because if you are trying to engage those doubts or make space for them, um, then that might, though, that might cause distress for your summer Christian spouse who has to listen to them because it scares them. So, 
So I think it cuts both ways. I do think it's problematic if we are not living an authentic spiritual life with our spouse. Um, I do, I do think if one is having significant doubts about faith and they're not sharing those, um, it's almost borders on secrecy. And the trouble with that is, is that that might then begin that journey to out of faith completely because, um, they become more and more disengaged. And so they start dropping on the engagement dimension. And then when you have all of these doubts without the engagement, I think that's the pathway out of faith. Mm. So I do think you have to have an authentic relationship with your spouse. But I think like, and I think most marriage counselors would, would, would also say this is that sometimes it's, it's better to, to take some of the stuff we're struggling with, not always to our spouse, but to other people who can share our journey to uh, accountability partners where one can talk about those things and they don't have to distress their spouse. So I think it, it's a healthy balance. How much of your deconstruction can your spouse tolerate without them becoming deeply disturbed? Mm. Um, and, uh, versus, but I don't, I do think just if a spouse just goes silent and they just sit in the pews, listening to sermons and listening to Sunday school and they're becoming increasingly disengaged and their faith is drying up. I think that's a problem as well. Now, maybe their spouse isn't going to be their spiritual director. They might need to go somebody for their spiritual direction. Yes. Um, well, that's what I'm doing here yeah. with you, except that she's going to hear it. So yeah, right. So, <laughs> So I think you're right. I, I think so. so I'll get, let me give you an example of this. So I remember when Jan and I were newlyweds and, um, and we were driving to a Bible study and she said, she, she asked me a question about, I forget what it was, but basically God's providence and the problem of suffering. So one of those deconstructing types of questions where summer and winter Christians part ways. She asked me the question, what do you think? You know, where is God in all this pain and suffering? And I told her, I said, you don't want to hear what I think about that. <laughs> and she goes, no, you know, I want to know what you and I, and I said, all right, I'll tell you. And so I told her what I thought about that. And then she was just shocked and goes, I can't believe you believe that. And let's just say we never made it to the Bible study that night. We we just went <laughs> town, never arrived in and it was the first moment in our faith journey together that we realized that we kind of saw things very, very differently and that we both found each other's perspective kind of disturbing, you know, like, like <laughs> I, um, and at some level, like, like, or pr at least problematic. Yes. And I think Janet even went to our preacher and, and said, you know, is, is Richard something wrong with him? Is he in trouble of, is he in danger of going to hell for having these ideas? And, and all I have to say is, yeah, I've experienced that. I've shared some things theologically that, again, kind of knocked Jana off kilter. And, and I don't know if I would I, – I, I don't know if I'd do that to a spouse regularly. I don't know if you had some crazy heretical ideas or doubts. You should just kind of dump those on your spouse and kind of set, set them. I do think you need a space to explore and talk about those things. Um, uh, yeah, I was thinking um, – there was another quote you were talking about, you know uh, – there was a, a blog you wrote about the uh, millisecond, how, uh, I can't remember what was the phrasing you used. How, yeah. How the, the, the battle to be like Jesus is won or lost in milliseconds. Right. And how, um, so emotionally we are, we are not going to practice Jesus well, because when we're working out of our emotions, our emotions are, um, come from our woundedness and we'll, we'll tend to be uh, defensive or combative or whatever. And, and so um, you talked about this, you, that you need to have these spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices that, that help you practice not acting out of your emotional emotionality. And uh, you talked about this uh, no, no detour practice. And uh, you were talking about how um, the person that you learned this from, she, uh, she's a nun and she would go through, there's certain nuns that she didn't get along with. And so typically in her life, uh, in her daily life, she would just avoid these people. She would walk around where they're going to be. 
And, uh, but during Lent, she would practice no detour. She would uh, take some time to actually, well, she would make sure that she didn't detour out of their path so that she would come into contact with them and, and the possibility of interacting. And, and um, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you see where I'm going with this, but I'm thinking maybe there's some application of that to how we deal with our spouses. Yeah, no, it goes back to, yeah, I mean, are, are there times when we have to kind of not have have this big theological conversation right now? Do, do we have to walk around some of these things? Again, I'm hesitant to think that there that you, you would have some, something so significant as your walk with God be something that you wouldn't share with your spouse, but you'd also want to protect them, too. And so I, I do think care is, is, I don't know if you detour around those things, but I do think you take great care that when you are speaking about spiritual things with your spouse or you're expressing doubts or deconstruction to your spouse, that you're not just talking about your faith journey. You are also implicitly or explicitly critiquing their faith journey. And so that's really hard to do well. And that's that's why you, when you say critiquing, what do you mean by that? Well, for example, um, let, let's say you have a problem with, um, uh, penal substitutionary atonement. And so for those listening in that don't know what that is, right? The idea that God, Jesus, you know, the wrath of God is directed towards us, but instead it falls upon Jesus. He substitutes himself and he takes upon God's judgment. Um, and, and God needs a, a, a blood death sacrifice to be appeased. And so you're singing a worship song. That comes out, Hillsong song. And in fact, I remember a song recently that happened at our church. And, and I think the lyric was like Oceans of Blood. <laughs> I think it was, <laughs> it might have had the lyric Oceans of Blood in it. And if you find, as a person, just find that imagery kind of problematic. Um, but let's just say your spouse was just deeply moved by that vision of love. Like the Oceans of Blood represents for them God's great overwhelming grace. And so you walk out of church and start just railing against that song about like how problematic it is. Well, your spouse is sitting there going, you know, I, I actually was God, the Holy spirit reached me through that song. And so now you're criticizing what happened to them. And, and, and now they have gone quiet because they don't feel like they can share how much they loved this song because they think you're going to cut across them with criticism with theological argument and so again this is so when so by, by critiquing you're you're looking you're listening to why things matter to them and you're appreciating that and and looking for some way to understand and accept how how it uh, affects them and, and and how they think about it yeah well that's what well i guess what i'm trying to say is you're not really critiquing them you 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 were just describing your reaction to a song. But what I'm saying is your spouse will hear your personal reaction as a form of critique. Mm. Like, and so they feel it's not, you're just not sharing your doubts. You're implicitly critiquing um, what they find life giving. And so the sermon that you find problematic is something that they really enjoy. And so when you hear, when you say how terrible it is or how theologically problematic it is, they feel critique for liking it. They, they, they think that maybe you think they're, um, you know, not a good Christian or not very smart for not seeing all these problems and they're not as deep as you. So they, they feel criticized. So what all I have to say is I don't, I don't, you gotta, you gotta thread the needle between detouring, which is never sharing what's going on with you spiritually to the other side, which is you just venting, all your doubts and your criticisms and your deconstruction to your spouse in a way that causes them to shut down. So I think great care is needed to talk about these because they're really sensitive. I think you can talk about them with your spouse, but you, I think it's got to be in a way that, that um, allows for you both to share back and forth. And you listen, why did you find that life giving? Why well, find that life giving? Cause it made me feel loved. And like, you know, um, that's great. You affirm that. And, I admit that's tricky, but I guess that's not the only tricky conversation in a marriage, but it's one of them. Well, it's, it's, it's probably like anything that's tricky. What's really important, sounds like you're saying, is that we 
we take the time to acknowledge and affirm um, what is good and, and true about their perspective and not just uh, n- we should never be attempting to change their mind on things. That shouldn't be the first goal. The first goal should be to, uh, to show them acceptance for their perspective um, and, and acknowledge what's good about their perspective. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's why I was saying earlier about this period of deconstruction can op- actually make you a worse person. And it can happen not just you becoming judgmental about the faith perspective you left behind, but it can make you critical of your spouse as well. And so whenever you think you're on a journey, there is implicit in that idea that you're advancing. In fact, even the word progressive Christianity makes it seem like you have made progress. Mm-hmm. And therefore, again, that's an implicit critique. You have moved on to the truth. Yes, there's a great temptation to uh, become superior in your own mind and heart. Yeah, and so I think if you're going to do this journey of deconstruction and doubt, um, you're going to have to pay attention to your own humility. But here's the other thing, too, to say. A lot of people begin this journey of deconstruction and doubt because they've been wounded by churches. Mm. And you often will see some of the most toxic versions of this deconstruction happening when people really aren't working through their emotional woundedness. So the other thing I would say about all this is that a lot of, a lot of what is deconstruction, it's kind of like how sex is often a symptom of a deeper marital problem. Like, like it's a dashboard, like in marriage, like a, your sex life would be like a dashboard indicator, like a check engine light is coming on. That there's a deeper structural problem going on and it tends to manifest itself, let's say, in sex. I think right. spirituality is a similar dashboard indicator that, that there may be some you might think you're talking about deconstruction, but you're really talking about grief. You might think you're talking about God, but you're really talking about depression or unemployment or an addiction. You might really think you're talking about, you know, um, a, a theological difference with your church, but you're really talking about, you know, midlife Christ. Does it make sense? Like, yeah, flesh that out. Give it, give an example. Well, I mean, I mean, a lot of people like, like I've seen, um, friends and family members go through trauma, like the loss of a child. And the two, the two spouses react to it very differently theologically. One is drawn closer to God and the other one is drawn away from God. And so what, what is on the surface, a, a period of deconstruction or doubting is really just the grief process playing out. Um, and, and, or it could be a guy is going through a period of difficulty in his workplace. And so he is, um, or, or goes through a period of season of depression. So he's not going to church anymore. And he's raising all these questions about church. And so it looks like doubt and deconstruction, but it's really a deeper, um, a deeper emotional problem that he's going through. Yeah. So it's like, it's like they're using their, uh, well, I'm, I'm taking a, a deeper look at my faith as kind of a, a, a covering a shell for, for grief. Yeah. Or depression or some other, or, or another relational problem. Like, like, uh, like you're, you know, the reason why you and your foul, you, the reason why you and your spouse can't talk about God isn't because of God or deconstruction or someone or Christian. It's because you're having trouble talking to your spouse about all sorts of things. And this is just one aspect of a deeper, you know, problem. And, and, so, it, and it becomes the, the easy one for you to say, um, well, uh, this is, it, it's legitimate that we have a difference here because I'm, I'm doing, I'm moving forward. I'm progressing. Right. Yeah. And so you can, you can use your deconstruction um, as a way to dig at your spouse. You can basically say, you know, I don't like this church and you know, you know, she likes it or she knows he likes it. And then you can use your doubt or your deconstruction to basically ding them about, about that. Um, And so now you're, now you're fighting about Sunday morning and where you go and what you're listening to. But again, it's not really about Sunday morning. It's really about a deeper, marital conflict that's just now leaking into this area as well. And so you're actually moving further from becoming Christ-like. Correct. Which is, which is uh, kind of coming full circle here, but that, that's the, that's that dangerous deconstruction deconstruction for the purpose of deconstructing 
uh, or to, to just to be different and and um, then you're really missing the whole the whole great commandment next month will mark the first anniversary of relationship rewire in our first 11 months we had over 100,000 downloads of the podcast if you would have told me a year ago that we would reach and help this many people, I would have been pretty skeptical. But Relationship Rewire is not all we do. In fact, most of the time and energy is spent directly with couples and spouses. About once a month, we conduct a three-day intensive workshop for marriages called Love Reboot. Earlier this year, I completed my 100th marriage intensive. Thousands of marriages have been saved and numerous families are still intact and now thriving as a result. We've also developed a marriage course that is taken by thousands of couples, individuals, and engaged couples called Growing Love. Growing Love is so effective that the state of Texas has designated it as a Together in Texas course. Engaged couples who complete the course don't have to pay the state marriage license fee. We've also trained more than 100 couples to facilitate and lead effective marriage courses. We began Growing Love Network because we saw two big things that were lacking in the marriage help world. First of all, most approaches to marriage help are not effective. Even though they may be interesting and provide good information, they often leave people with little more than a few ideas and tools which they now expect the other spouse to be better at practicing. This new raised bar of expectations now only leads to further frustration and resentment. Growing Love Network is revolutionizing the way marriage help is done by working on the hearts and minds of the individual spouse, helping each spouse to focus on what they themselves can do rather than trying to change each other. This is one reason why our success rates are so much higher than other traditional approaches. Also, we began Growing Love Network on a model that makes it available to anyone, regardless of ability to pay. For example, other effective marriage intensives start out at over $2,000, and most are $3,500 and above, with no scholarship assistance available for those who cannot afford it. Love Reboot is less than half their price, and about half of the couples who attend receive scholarship assistance, thanks to our donors. Simply put, without donors, we cannot do what we do. I want you to consider one more thing. Most or all of the organizations and causes you might give to are what philanthropy experts would refer to as downstream philanthropy. Imagine you and several friends are standing on the banks of a river as you begin to notice several people floating by as they struggle to keep from drowning. Your natural instinct, and rightly so, would be to jump in and start rescuing them. But if more and more people kept floating by, struggling for their lives, eventually somebody is going to consider going upstream and attempt to prevent what is causing all these people from falling in the river in the first place. Downstream philanthropy is staying downstream, focusing on the symptoms instead of the cause. Upstream philanthropy saves time, energy, and resources by tackling the problems at their source. A recent study showed that a conservative estimate is that a single divorce costs us taxpayers an average of $30,000. This is largely due to the fact that children of divorce are much more likely to be involved in many of the things we donate to preventing or subduing, such as teenage pregnancy, poverty, hunger, substance abuse, crime, emotional and psychological disorders, incarceration, and subsequent divorce further perpetuating the cycle. So you see, it would be difficult to find a better bang for your donation buck than contributing to Growing Love Network and supporting this podcast as well as the many other ways we are turning this tide. Take a moment and ask God if this is what you should do right now. If the answer is yes, hit pause and go to growinglovenetwork.org and click on the donate button. As a way of showing our appreciation, we won't continue until you hit the play button. Well, I 
think, and here's the thing, maybe I know I'm going to be really simplistic, but, but really this is where it comes down to me. Um, it's all, it's all about, if you're looking for dashboard indicators on the spiritual life, doubt, faith, progressive views on the atonement, conservative views on the atonement, none of those are markers of healthy spirituality. I think the marks of healthy spirituality are the fruits of the spirit. Mm. Are you kind? Are you gentle? Are you peacemaking? Are you more and more self-controlled and joyful? Like, are you more faithful uh, to your church and to your kids and to your spouse? Like, those are your dashboard indicators. And if your faith is causing those things to start come on, you know, in, you know, flash on your dashboard as problems, then I think you got to, you know, Jesus said, by, by your fruits, you'll know them. So sometimes I think we focus a little bit too much. And maybe this is, this is where I think this, the summer Christian spouse should hear this message. I think sometimes we talk a little bit too much about ideas, about what is the content of our ideas. So the winter Christian might have very different ideas about the atonement or a praise song or a sermon than the summer Christian. But those are just ideas. The issue is, is your winter Christian spouse still faithful, still kind, still joyful, still loving? I mean, they might be the biggest heretic in the church, <laughs> right? And, and their, her- their little heretical views might, you just might find really disturbing. But look at the fruits of the Spirit. If those are there, then you have a Christ-like spouse. And as I would say for the progressive Christian looking at the winter summer Christian, they might have some, in your view, you know, dogmatic and problematic views of hell and the atonement and, and providence. But are they loving, kind, faithful? Then you have a Christ-like spouse. So I would say at the end of the day, the ideas are fantastic coffee shop conversations. They're just interesting. I like talking about theology, but but watch the fruits of the spirit because I think that's where you find unity in a marriage. And I think that's where Jan and I have found unity because we encourage those fruits in each other. And however you get there, you're reading a liberal theology book, you know, to become more loving, and she's reading a conservative theology book to become more loving, then fine. Then love is the ultimate fruit that you're trying to bear witness to in each other's lives. You know, uh, man, this is really convicting to me, but I, I can also, you know, even if, if somebody's deconstruction was leading them to agnosticism or atheism, I think even the atheist or the agnostic would say, if you're not becoming a kinder, gentler human, then whatever you're believing in is not good. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, that's a very, um, that's common ground, I think, for a lot of people. And, and so, again, the, the contents of our ideas are one thing, um, but the witness of our lives is, is where the, the proof's in the pudding. As right. Yeah. Well, this is really good because it's made me, th- <laughs> just in, in this last thing you were talking about, I, I was thinking about, just this past weekend, we're moving our uh, youngest into her junior year uh, there at ACU into her apartment. And, and we, for our family, I don't know about you, you've got boys, so you probably won't experience this, but I've got two girls and a boy. We, we took our son to uh, University of Arkansas uh, last year and, and uh, we got him all moved in in about 30 minutes. And for our, for our daughter, it was a two and a half day experience. But I've seen that in the girls' dorm. I've never seen so many power tools. (laughs) Yeah, construction going on. I, I, yes, I brought uh, several armloads of of tools with me. But yes, but you know, the the whole time, I, I am getting just more and more um, emotional, negatively um, about the whole situation, and it's coming out. and I, I, I'm thinking to myself, uh, I am superior because I am thinking this is all just for show. This is all so shallow. We're putting all this time into trying to compete with other uh, 
girls' rooms and <laughs> that stuff, you know, which may have not been the case. That's just how I'm seeing it. But and and so in my mind, my way of thinking is superior and more Christ-like. But the whole time, I'm acting less and less <laughs> like yeah. like Jesus would. And uh, yeah, so I don't know if that's a good example, but. Um, you know, it's the, what I hear you saying is that in this whole idea of deconstructing is if it's, if it's not leading us to act towards our spouse more like Christ would act towards them, then whatever the end game is in our deconstructing is it's not going to serve ourselves or humanity or the kingdom in any way. Yeah. I would, yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of what I would say to anybody going through a period of deconstruction. If, if, if your questions and the theology you're pursuing, whatever label you want to put on it, you want to call it progressive theology or liberal theology or just whatever, if, if, but, but you're, you're on a journey. If that, theological explanation uh, exploration is leading you deeper into Christ likeness, then uh, I don't think your spouse is going to complain too much. About that. <laughs> right. Right. But, but if it's turning you into a cynical judgmental person, then maybe you have all the, maybe you are smarter than everybody else in your church. But um, to what, to what end is that? To Who what cares? purpose is all of that? Exactly. Right. Well, one last question, if you've got a, a minute. Sure. Um, so we've been talking more because you and I, I think by your definition, are more winter trying to become uh, sprinkled more with fall and spring. And uh, what would you what would you say to the summer spouse that um, uh, would help them deal with the winter spouse better? Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to give too much advice about that, but but I would just circle back to something I said earlier, is that if what, one of the sermons I've been preaching recently is, is how we treat the, the Bible as a mixtape rather than an album. And <laughs> some of your younger listeners might need to know what a mixtape is. But we used to make cassette tapes, you know, and, yes. and, and mix. And what I mean by the I was thinking some of them might need an explanation on what an album is. Yeah, exactly. They didn't have that experience we had of the the getting your uh, dark side of the moon and, and listening to it on the on the record player as you read through the lyrics and look at the jacket and study all the. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, exactly. No, yeah. No, I'm with you. And uh, but but the basic idea of a mixtape or any playlist is that you, you know, you pick your favorite songs, you pick and choose what you like to listen to. Um, and you pull the, the singles, the records out of the context of the full album. Hmm. And you don't listen to the entire uh, work of art. That, so the artist produced an album, you know, once this is the song's going to go first. And then, you know, so the whole thing is an artistic product, but we just sample, you know, the top 40 hit off of that album, never hear the whole album. And I said, sometimes we treat the Bible and the faith journey like a mixtape. We just like our verses. We like our stories. We like, and I think for summer Christians, you know, they like the optimistic things. They're like, you know, hey, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and uh, you know, you give me wings like eagles and so on and so forth. So for the summer Christian, though, if you just sample, the positivity, um, then again, it becomes disconnected from the larger album of scripture and that the winter Christians in your life can help you attend to um, the full voice of scripture that it speaks to the darker experiences. Um, and I think, that, but again, the same would go for the winter Christian that they all, they have their own sad song mixtape of the Bible and they need to sing the hopeful songs as well. And so I think all of us need to learn to sing all the songs of Scripture. And we can help each other pay attention to um, the, the happier and the darker aspects of that. And so because if you're going to, you know, like read the Psalms, most of the Psalms are lament songs. And the winter Christians are going to attend to that. And the reason why most of the lament Psalms, Psalms are lament Psalms is because there is a dislocation and a brokenness and experience that winter Christians are acutely aware of. And they keep the faith grounded and honest in the grit of life. And that might be uncomfortable for the summer Christian. But my hope would be that they could see value 
in that. And that I would also say that the, the, the winter Christians are, are in this day and age, some of our best apologists and evangelists to an increasingly secular age. Because maybe your kid's going to grow up and ask a hard question about faith. And you might, at that moment, be really happy that you have a winter Christian spouse to say, hey, go talk to your mom about that or go talk to your dad about that. Because they can talk for long periods of time about those questions and, those, and they have really good answers. And so some, you might discover that downstream, your spouse might be the very thing that saves the faith of a family member because they're asking the same, you know? So yeah, right now when it might not seem like their doubts are all that great, but then you never know when those resources that they have inside of themselves, all that stuff that they've been reading and thinking and questioning suddenly comes to the fore because somebody's in a faith crisis and they're the person that gets called up to go have the long coffee with. Um, because they've been there and they've been through that journey and they can be a non-anxious presence in the life of that person that you care about. Um, so that's what I would say the summer Christian spouse. And that's that kind of what you're talking about there, sending the child to the other parent. That's not going to happen when you're not appreciating the winteriness of your opposite spouse or the summerness of your spouse. And when you're not um, appreciating that that's an aspect of God that uh, that you don't necessarily have that you're, bringing uh, they're bringing to to this oneness that makes what a beautiful godly marriage should be yeah i think that's right yeah i mean israel just means the one who wrestles with god and that's what winter christians do they they wrestle with god constantly through the night you know like jacob and they come out limping but they wrestle with god and they're tenacious about it. And I think there is a beauty in watching your spouse wrestle with God. Um, they, they, and that's what I'm saying is they are engaged. They are in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. There's a beauty in them um, fighting and wrestling with God. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, this, is, this has been uh, really helpful for me. I don't know about you, but... Um, uh, there can you, you've got that uh, more on that winter Christian versus summer Christian in, in, in your blog. Is that right? Yeah, I can send. I'll send you a link to the post and maybe you can oh. share it with your people. Okay. Um, any last thought you want to add on to all this? No, I just appreciation for you bringing up the conversation because, like I shared when you invited me to the podcast, is that I think this is one of the most under talked about marital issues out there is that we're always talking about sex, and we're always talking about money, we're always talking about communication, but very rarely do we talk about faith and doubt in the theological journeys because we're not the same. We don't believe the same the way when we first met each other in college, you know, whatever. like we've been, we've, we're on journey, theological journeys and a lot of, and I've seen a lot of marital stress and strain and frustration come out of when two spouses take on very different journeys and I just think it's under talked about. So I'm just grateful to, to raise the issue um, with your listeners. Yeah, I, I think it, to some extent, this is all marriages. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, it may be that some are going through a season of this more than others. But um, I, I think to some extent, uh, I'm more convinced now after our conversation that, that, that this applies to all marriages. Because there's something, I think, about these bents that um, we are there that are different than ours that, that we're drawn to. So I, I'm, I'm interested to see as I try to look through this lens at couples now, this winter versus summer lens, I, I, I imagine I will, I'm going to find that, that every couple has one summer and one winter uh, spouse to some extent. And uh, that, 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 that very aspect alone can be something that, it can either take the marriage down if they don't handle it well, or it can profoundly make a a, a much deeper, um, fulfilling, uh, heavenly marriage. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Um, When I've shared the summer winter Christian 
with, with, with churches, I've gotten so much positive feedback from marriages say this was so helpful. We did not have language to describe what was happening with us. We just thought he was weird or she was strange, but now we understand that these are legitimate ways with God and just naming it helps normalize it and gets us out of that scared what's going on with my spouse situation. Well, I'm, I'm excited to listen to this with Joanna and, and I'm sure it's going to bring some great conversation between the two of us that brings us even closer. So I, I really appreciate this, Richard. I'd like to have you on. There's so many topics I, I'd like to have you on, um, but I hope you can come back soon. Oh, I would love to. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Relationship Rewire is produced by Growing Love Network. Growing Love Network exists to revolutionize relationships for lifelong love. You can find us on the web at growinglovenetwork.org. We welcome your feedback on this or any of our episodes. Send us an email to relationshiprewire at gmail.com. Okay, that's the official ending. I really really do appreciate it. I think this is good. What are your uh, takeaway thoughts, if any? No, just just what I just said at the end. I really think I'd be happy to do more um, conversation about it because, um, um, yeah, just get get some feedback about from your listeners or anybody else who listens to it. Maybe we can revisit some, you know, revisit some of the the issues. Um, Yes. Yes, I think think there's – you know, we just kind of scratched the surface of some, a lot of really important things here. Yeah. I just, I'm just sent you the link to my summer winter Christian post. Okay. So, um, uh, I don't know if you can post links on your website along with this, but you can, you can post that there and say, Hey, if you want to follow up, you can read this blog post and we'll unpack. This love endures for